Turn in your Bibles, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Our sermon text this morning spans all of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, uh, but for the sake of time, I think it would be good if we just read uh, the first few verses of chapter 8. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is where we'll be, and we'll begin reading in chapter 8, verse 1. The Apostle Paul, writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is God's word. Would you bow with me now in prayer? Thank you, Father, for this gathering of your saints. Thank you so much for our families that make up one big family, the Indian Creek Baptist Church family. And thank you for all of our guests who have joined us this morning. Lord, thank you for those who cannot be here in person but have joined us online. I pray that you would pour out your blessing on each one. And especially that you would do so through your word. That you would cause each of our minds to understand and agree with what you have said. And then I pray that you would ignite our affections to obey with joy. Father, I pray that you would do all this in this moment as we examine what your word has to say. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, today is a day when we need to begin thinking about a commitment. Today is a day when we need to start moving toward a decision. By the way, if you're here from out of town or you're our guest with us today, you've come on a very special Sunday during a very special time in our church's life. Uh, After years of praying and planning and uh, talking with one another, the time has come for Indian Creek Baptist Church to make a big investment in our future by expanding Our building. And so we're going to talk about something that we don't talk about every week today. But I'm glad you're here. 
And I don't want to take up a lot of time out of the worship service to explain why we're doing what we're doing or what specifically we're going to do. If you want to hear more about that, I would invite you to join us for one of our vision desserts on Tuesday nights the next two weeks. You can sign up at the Welcome Center or you can sign up on our website. Uh, please make it a priority to go to one of these. But what I want to take uh, the, the, our time this morning to do is to challenge us that in order to take this step, this step that we've been praying and planning for, for years, then that is going to require of us as a church family to pitch in together and to make an investment. And yes, that investment is going to have to be financial. Over the last several weeks, we've laid a foundation for the kind of commitment each of us is being asked to make. We talked about what it means to be a faithful church. That is a church that doesn't just kind of hold on to our talent and make sure that we don't lose it, but a church that's willing to take reasonable risks to invest that talent, the things that God has given us, so that we can bring a spiritual profit to our master. We talked about what it means to be a praying church, a church that refuses to move forward except on our knees in prayer. We talked about what it means to be a grateful church, a contented church, a church that is uh, operating out of thankfulness for what God has done instead of comparing ourselves with everybody else or trying to earn God's favor by the works that we do. And all of these things lead us to a very practical, real-world fact that a church that is faithful a church that's praying, a church that operates out of gratitude and thankfulness is also going to be a generous church. Generous with our time and our resources and our friendship and our kindness to others, yes, but at the end of the day, also generous financially. Now, some of you have a cynical side and you may be asking, if, you, if you're like me, why are we talking about this? Why are we going through a stewardship campaign? Why are we talking about money? That's a little crass and impolite. Folks, I can honestly tell you before God that we are not talking about this because I'm worried about the building or because I'm worried and stressed out that we won't have enough money to move forward. I can honestly say that as much as this process has stretched me personally, I have never once felt even so much as tempted to try to get you to part with your money by any kind of manipulative means. I don't have a personal investment in this. It's not part of my uh, identity or anything like that. That's not why we're doing this. So why are we doing this? Well, months ago when we knew we were getting close to this point. I was personally, frankly, reluctant to do any sort of a stewardship campaign at all. But then I, I started to think. I started to think about the testimonies that believers had shared with me from past experiences in which they had taken steps of faith in order to make a financial investment in the future of the church to which they belong. People like uh, those who were a part of this church uh, about 20 years ago. People who were part of previous churches that I had been a part of. And, and I remembered those those testimonies, and I, and I had this realization. There is not a single Christian, there is not a single Christian who has passed from being a baby Christian to being a mature Christian where it hasn't actually impacted their wallet. Now let me say that one more time. 
There is not a single Christian, no one, who passed from the baby Christian phase to the mature Christian phase who did not also take steps of faith when it came to their finances. It is part of growing in Christ. It is going to impact the way that you use your time and your talents and your treasure. And I began to think about what I know about our church. I don't know who gives what. I'm glad I don't know who gives what, but I do know this about uh, Christianity in general in the United States. I know that in general, the average Christian gives about 2.5% of his or her income to charity, only a portion of which goes to their local church. By the way, during the Great Depression, it was almost a full percentage point more than that in the 1930s. I also know that there's a wide disparity just frankly, between the number of households who call Indian Creek their church family and their church home and the number of households who actually make that financial investment on a regular basis by giving to the church. And so what that tells me, folks, as the shepherd, as one of the shepherds here at Indian Creek, is that there's actually a barrier between where many of you are And where God wants you to be in terms of your spiritual growth, and I hope that you can see by now, after everything we've talked about, that there is a connection between the health of your heart and your relationship with God and the habits of your financial life. I mean, it's just the way it is. And I'm zealous to see many more people take this step of faith, to go from a mindset of scarcity that comes from the world, a mindset of, I don't have enough, to a mindset of gratitude and faith that is so ingrained that it actually flows out in financial generosity. So my hope, my prayer, is that some of you will, for the first time, take the step of faith to begin to give to your local church. And I'm so eager for you to take this step. I'm so eager for you to see how God provides for you, how he keeps his promises to you, how he takes care of you as you walk by faith in this way. That's why I finally decided to go through this process. It's not because of the building. It's because I know that this is a step of spiritual growth that each one of us has to take, and I just feel like it's a wonderful opportunity for us to challenge each other to take that step together. I I, I imagine this is one of the reasons why Jesus talked about money so often. There are literally thousands of verses in the Old and New Testaments that challenge us in the area of financial stewardship. Thousands. And should we shrink back from sharing in that together just because it calls upon us to, to make a sacrifice or because it seems a little impolite or because it makes us feel uncomfortable? I don't think so. I don't mind being a little bit uncomfortable and I don't mind making you feel a little bit uncomfortable if... We know that we can catch the vision for how Jesus wants, to think about, uh, wants us to think about our money. And, and, and we know that when we go to the word of God and we allow ourselves to think the way that God thinks, we'll literally be transformed from the heart. So yes, I am willing to go there for that reason. And folks, there are dozens, if not hundreds of Christians in this very room who can testify to that reality. You start asking people what their experience has been, and they will tell you that when you begin to walk by faith with regard to your money and your possessions, you will be dramatically and wonderfully transformed. I mean, I can tell you, I can tell you story after story. And there's no better place in Scripture to hear God's heart about this topic than this passage that we've read. So today, I want to give you a kind of a high-level background of this passage, and then we're actually going to find in these two chapters 10 
scriptural principles about financial stewardship. Now, I know when I said the word 10, you guys recoiled and said, no, uh, we're only going to get to four of those today, and then we'll save the, the other six for next week. So there are 10 total. We'll get to four today, and then the other six a week from today. But let's begin by just orienting ourselves to the background of these two chapters. Uh, these two chapters appear in a letter, actually the fourth known letter, written by the Apostle Paul to a small church in a big city that he had founded years before this bustling city of Corinth. And Paul is working on a big project. You see, uh, the very first church in existence, the church in Jerusalem, is suffering because of a famine. They are, people are starving in the city of Jerusalem, and so Paul and some of his colleagues had decided they're going to go around to the churches in, in Europe and, and some of the churches that they had planted among the Gentiles, and they're going to ask for financial assistance that they could then take back to Jerusalem and provide some relief for some of the saints back there so that they could show the world that they were caring for their brothers and sisters in Christ. And it seems as though everybody in these churches is on board with what Paul is trying to do. In fact, the, the, the churches in Macedonia, so Corinth is in the southern part of what is now Greece, uh, in the region called Achaia, and then just to their north, in the region of Macedonia, these churches up here, even though they're not wealthy, even though they're quite poor, they've already gotten on board and they've given out of this overflow generously to this uh, cause. And so now Paul is going to the, city of, or to the church at Corinth and he's saying, listen, these people over here in, in Macedonia, they've already kind of put themselves out there and I would ask you to do the same thing. And so he's encouraging them to give generously. These are the circumstances of the passage. And so with all that in the back of our minds, we can start to think about the financial principles that he lays out for us today. Principle number one, generosity is a gift of God's grace flowing from the incarnation of Jesus Christ. I'll say that again. Generosity is a gift of God's grace flowing from the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Now think about this. On eight separate occasions in these two chapters, eight different times, Paul refers to the act of financial generosity giving to this project using the word grace. Now, sometimes it's translated in your English translation with that word grace. Sometimes it's translated with the word favor. Uh, in verse uh, 6, I believe it's translated an act of grace. It's all one word, though. It's this word grace. In other words, what Paul seems to be emphasizing is that generosity is actually a gift of God's grace to you and me. To be able to be generous to other people, that's something that comes from God. It's one of his gifts to us. And he goes even further than that. It's not just generic grace. It's not just him giving us a gift to be able to be generous to other people. It's actually grace that flows directly from the reality that Jesus came in the flesh. It flows from the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So notice with me verse 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What is Paul talking about here in verse 9? Well, he's talking about the incarnation. 
he's talking about the moment that the eternal Son of God actually became man. Now think about what that entails. The eternal Son of God set aside the glories of heaven to become a man and be born into poverty. It was this act of grace, this generous giving up of his wealth that made it possible for each of us to experience the wealth of heaven that he had left behind. In other words, Jesus did something that was so unexpected and so amazing. He gave up all of his own wealth so that sinners might become rich with the wealth that he himself possessed from eternity past. He took on flesh. He became poor for us. That reality serves as the very basis for Christian generosity. Christ became poor so that we might become rich. Therefore, we can exercise this gift of generosity. Now, this truth sort of explodes out into numerous different entailments, but I'll just mention a few. Think about this. Make this connection in your mind. First of all, before I say anything else, let me just say this. There is nothing more important, nothing more important than that you should come to know that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is actually the Son of God who gave his life on the cross and was raised again so that we could have life in him. You must start there. If the main thing you get from church today, or any day, in any church, if the main thing is, I need to go do fill in the blank. I need to do something. Then either you're missing it or I'm miscommunicating Because that is not the main message of Scripture. Do more, do better, change your life, improve your habits. No, if the changes that you're being called upon to make are not based on the foundation that Jesus Christ has come and and, and given himself for you so that you might experience his forgiveness and actually go from being spiritually poor to being spiritually wealthy beyond beyond all imagination, then you're missing it. See, if any of the changes you're making to your life are, are rooted in anything other than a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ, all that stuff is going to crumble. It doesn't really matter. It's going to fail. Church is not ultimately about a thing you need to do. Folks, it's about a person you need to know. You must know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says as much in verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second entailment, if your practice of generosity is not modeled after the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in his incarnation, then you have to ask yourself, what's missing from what you know about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because it naturally flows from that. I mean, you've been forgiven of every sin. You've been forgiven of every bitter thought, every unkind word, every act of rebellion. But that generous gift of God's grace, purchased at such a cost to the Son of God, has never led you to become a generous person. There's a disconnect, if that's the case. The truth is that that the truth of the grace of Christ just hasn't seeped into your inner man to the level that it really ought to. How can we say that our hearts have been transformed by the grace of Christ if we cannot also say that our wallets have been reached by the grace of Christ? It ought to make a difference. Entailment number three. Notice how this sets a standard for Christian generosity. 
Think about what Jesus has done and notice how this sets a standard for us. How much of Jesus' wealth did he set aside in order to complete his mission by being sent into the world to die for sinners and, and rise again? But what, what percentage of his wealth did he give away? Was it 10%, 20 30 No, he gave it all. For your sakes, he became poor. The word translated poor, it actually means absolute, total, destitute poverty. In other words, this isn't, well, I have a little bit more months than I have money. No, Jesus became poor. He became destitute. He had nowhere to lay his head. No fancy clothes. No sumptuous food. He gave it all. From time to time, this, here's the point. We, sometimes Christians debate over whether or not it is a requirement for believers in this day and age to give 10% of their income to the local church. And by the way, many believers, this is what I grew up hearing, many of you believe that God requires every Christian to give 10% of their gross income to their local church as a, as a gift. And, and that's what it means, by the way, when we talk about tithing. Tithing means 10%. And, and many believers think that this is a requirement for Christians today. Now, I have never taught that because I don't think it can be supported from Scripture. That's just my personal understanding of the Bible. But according to chapter 8, verse 9, what is the standard that Jesus has set? What portion of our wealth does God expect us to give back to him? Is it 10%? No, it's 100%. Like it's all of it. Every penny I've been given is a stewardship from God. Not a cent is mine alone. Now, does that mean that I give it all to the Indian Creek Baptist Church? Obviously not. But here's the point. I'd better be using all of it to do what God has called me to do. And can I, who has been redeemed at so great a cost, who has been given so great a gift, who has been loved to the depths that Christ loved me, be less generous today than the Israelite living on subsistence income from his farm centuries before Christ who didn't have the knowledge of the Savior that I have today? I think not. Principle number one, Christian generosity is a gift of God's grace flowing from the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. Principle number two, generosity is a personal decision. Generosity is a personal decision. So where are you getting that? Look at verse three uh, of chapter eight. Paul says, they gave according to their means as I can testify and beyond their means. How? What does it say? Of their own accord. Or verse 10, Paul says he challenges the, the Corinthians not only to do this work, but also to what? To desire to do it. Or chapter 9, verse 5, he, he wants it to be a willing gift, not an exaction. Or chapter 9, verse 7, each one must give as he has made up in his mind. Generosity is, is a personal decision. Notice, it's very important to Paul that believers make up their own mind about generosity. I think the reason for that is very obvious. Generosity that's forced, generosity that's coerced or manipulated or squeezed out of us is not generosity at all. It's just somebody getting money from somebody else. Uh, do you feel altogether generous when you get your paycheck and you look at that pay stub and it says such and such amount was 
withheld for federal income tax? I mean, does that make you feel generous? No. <laughs> or when, like, your child's teacher sends a note home and it says $15 for the field trip is due next Tuesday, you don't feel generous putting that $15 and sending it with your kid. You just feel like, oh, I guess I have to give it. Because generosity that's forced, generosity that's coerced, that's not generosity at all. That's just, you have to give the money. You're just compelled to do it. So the church, though, is a different kind of institution. One of the things that I find uh, just remarkable, one of the things I just feel like is so wonderful about ministering in the church is that every, every single thing that I enjoy as a full-time minister of the gospel comes to me as a result of the fact that believers, uncoerced, unforced, have given freely of the things that God has given them. And so that enables me to be in a position where I don't have to go out and find work to support my family. I can spend all of my time serving the church and ministering on behalf of the church and the community because of God's grace in the church. That is wonderful. No organization, no other organization is like this. Ordinary people supporting the ministry of their local church. Just because they're thankful to Christ and they want to see his name and his fame spread throughout the region. So what does that tell us? It tells us that we have to each individually and as families take the time to meet with the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, make the decision that we feel God is leading each of us to make. It's a personal decision that each of us has to make. Let me make something really clear. We do, at Indian Creek, we have a budget that we vote on every year. We have financial goals that we're trying to meet for this particular building. But let me just say something. Sometimes I think we maybe miscommunicate about these matters. Whether or not we meet that budget or that financial goal has nothing to do with whether you have been personally faithful to the Lord. Like, if we meet our budget or go over our budget... In the giving, and we're surprised by just the, the, a greater amount of money than we expected. On the one hand, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're being faithful in what God is leading you to do. Nor, if we fail to meet those goals that we've set, does it mean that you're doing something, not doing something that God has led you to do? No, it's a personal decision, friends. It's a, it's a matter of between you and God. We could be below or above the goals that we set, and it wouldn't necessarily mean anything about where your heart is. See, that's between you and the Lord. Generosity has to be a personal decision. So if it sounds like I or anybody else, I, I hope it doesn't, but if it sounds like any of us is twisting somebody's arm or trying to manipulate, please understand, I, I am just trying to appeal to your intellect your reason, your love for the Lord, your better judgment as you and I examine the scriptures together. But ultimately, I want, you to encourage, I want to encourage you to make the personal decision to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in all things, including on the topic of money. It is a personal decision that all of us have to make for ourselves. Generosity is a personal decision. Principle number three, generosity is not just for rich people. Generosity is not just for rich people, and I put that in air quotes because that's the sort of phrase we use, but go back to verse 1. Paul's writing to a church in a wealthy city. Corinth 
is this bustling port city. It's a colony of the Roman Empire, very important uh, in terms of trade and commerce. It's the capital of the region of Achaia, basically southern Greece. But then notice in verses 2 and 3, whose example does he cite? Is it Corinth? Is it some other wealthy city, Rome, Alexandria, something like that? No, whose example does he cite? He says, look at what the churches in Macedonia have been doing. Now, these are churches... Uh, that you can read about in the New Testament. These are churches in cities like Thessalonica, Philippi, Berea. Th- these are not wealthy cities. Uh, read through First and Second Thessalonians. You will get the picture. These are people who struggle, who have to scrape and save just to get by. And yet Paul is able to use them as an example Even though they're poor, even though they're going through a time of severe lack, they're eager to show generosity and dig deep and give. In fact, this must have been a habit of theirs because years later, Paul finds himself under house arrest. He's in prison. And according to the letter to the Philippians, that that same region, those same churches get together again and they, they pull their resources and they end up sending a financial gift to Paul when he's under house arrest in Rome and under danger of being executed. I mean, these people were doing this habitually. So think about the practical upshot of this kind of uh, detail. I think it's very obvious, isn't it? Generosity is not the exclusive domain of the financially wealthy. It is not just for rich people, whatever that means to start. If you're waiting until you're rich whatever you define that as, until you make strides of of financial generosity, then you will never get there. You know it's true. I mean, because there's always going to be a pile of bills. They're always going to be paying off your medical debt. You're always going to be saving up for a down payment on a house or trying to pay off the car or buy the kids braces or uh, save for retirement or subsidize mom's long-term care. I mean, all these things just kind of pile on. They're always going to be there. And on and on it goes. But if you say, hey, I'm not rich, let so-and-so reach for the check. She can cover it for me and her. Then you're going to miss out. You heard the story I told the kids. The widow's copper coins were a greater gift than the treasures of the rich. Why? Because she gave in faith. See, God doesn't need our money. He is... Wealthy beyond belief, he owns everything. He gives us the gift of generosity for our good, for our own benefit as much as for anything else. And you don't have to be wealthy to be a generous person. By the way, uh, poor folks, according to this passage, can give generously, but that's not your situation, is it? I mean, let's be honest. Not in comparison with the Christians in Macedonia. They didn't have all the rights and privileges that we have as citizens of a free country in a modern world. They didn't have justice in the courts. They didn't have opportunities to go out and earn a living like we do today. They didn't have SNAP benefits or Medicaid in order to help them get on their feet. See, in antiquity, in most places in the world, people either had to work really hard, or they had to steal, or they starved. Those were the only three options. But in our country today, we are so blessed, folks. In our community today, we are so blessed financially. We've been given so much. But we rob ourselves of the opportunity to experience the gift of generosity when instead of looking to God in gratitude for what is on our plate, we look with envy at the plate of our neighbor. 
Let them take the check. Let her foot the bill. But generosity is not just for the rich. We can all store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And by the way, that leads me to principle number four. Generosity is a gift of God's grace. It's a personal decision. It's not just for rich people. But fourthly, generosity is enjoyable. Generosity is enjoyable. Did you notice verse 2? How did the Macedonians give? They gave out of the abundance, the overflow of joy. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 7, Paul says, God loves a cheerful giver. So anyone, folks, who has laid aside their greed or their discontentment or their anxiety over their financial future and, and began to trust the Lord and walk by faith in terms of their finances, they can testify to you that it is enjoyable to be this way. Generosity is enjoyable. You know this is true. It feels good to buy something for your child on their birthday, to watch their eyes light up when they open the gift. It's fun to surprise a loved one with a gift. And the same is true in the context of the church. Find someone, I challenge you, find someone that was here on the day or during the time when this building was constructed. Ask them what their experience was. Uh, And you'll find Even better, ask somebody that was here when that chapel across the street was built. I think what you're going to find consistently is that everyone who sacrificed for that considers it one of the highlights of their life. Not just a joy, but one of their greatest joys. Seriously, just ask them to tell their story. You'll see their eyes light up. This time around, um, we decided, I kind of almost regret this. We decided not to have one of those big tacky thermometers, you know, that's, that shows you where we're at on our fundraising thing. Um, because, you know, we're, I guess we're just very conservative with our decorations or something like that. I'm not really sure. Uh, but there's a piece of me that regrets that because what does that represent? It represents fun. Giving, generosity is fun. It is enjoyable. The scriptures testify to it. And what, Our friends that have done this, that have gone through it, they can testify to it as well. It is absolutely the truth. Uh, The the church that I used to be a part of in Pennsylvania, before I came along, uh, they had a thing, a tradition, every single year called I Gave the Whole Thing Sunday. Anybody in here ever had an I Gave the Whole Thing Sunday? All right, so it must be unique to, (laughs) to that particular church. I Gave the Whole Thing Sunday. Here's what they would do. They would challenge each other, the whole idea was that you were supposed to plan and save all year so that instead, when you, on this particular Sunday, instead of giving your 10% tithe like you're expected to do, you know, everybody did back in the day, you would give the whole paycheck, like the entire thing. And, and so, listen, I have not been through that. That was before my time. If you were to ask me to give an entire week's paycheck and you said, you know, part with this paycheck... I would start to feel a little prickly about that. But that is not the testimony of the people who actually went through that. They look back at that time as wonderful. Those memories of eating rice and beans and just doing without for a month or more so that on I gave the whole thing Sunday, they could actually say, I gave the whole thing. I mean, they thought it was wonderful. And those of you who have been through that sort of thing can testify to that fact. I don't know about you, But I want to be able to tell stories like that, not to brag on myself. But I want to be able to tell my children, my grandchildren, 
that there was a time when I refused to say, let that other guy foot the bill. And we scraped and we saved and we sacrificed to go after the privilege of enjoying generosity. I, I, I long for that. Now, each of us is at a, a different stage on this journey. Some of you right now, just to be honest, you're not making enough to even pay the bills that you have coming in. We all know that that's the case for many families. And I get that. I have literally been there, and it wasn't even that long ago. So I understand that we all need to take things a step at a time. But friends, listen. If you don't know the destination that you're going toward, you're never going to know where the first step needs to be pointed to. And so here's the destination. Here's the destination. That each of us, each of our families, would eagerly, joyfully, willingly, habitually, sacrificially embrace a lifestyle of radical generosity that the world cannot explain and that, quite frankly, can have a transformative effect not only in our hearts but in our community as a whole. That is the destination that each of us would get there. Some of you are already living this way. And I, if you don't mind, I'm just going to kind of leave you where you are, all right? Because you already know what's up. I want to speak to those of you who aren't giving regularly at all. These are people, there are people in here you cannot imagine giving 10% of your income to, to your local church, let alone 12 or 15. Well, I'm just going to give you a couple practical things. Next week we'll have six more principles, all right? So get ready for that. But let me just challenge you to do a few things. First of all, you were given a family devotional a few weeks ago. If you're a regular part of our church, uh, if you don't have one, you can get one at the Welcome Center. That devotional is designed to start today. I would just ask you, commit right now, right now, to work through that devotional together with your family over the next two weeks. Say so if you skip a week or skip a day or, or, or something, you can make it up. It's going to be fine. Uh, you don't have to be perfect. No one's going to check it. It's not for a grade. But commit right now. As a family, we're going to look at this together and spend a few minutes every day uh, working through this devotional. Second, I would ask you to begin to pray. And just ask God, here's what I would ask you to pray. God, where do you want me to start? Where do you want me to start? And then I would encourage you to do something else. I would encourage you to give yourself a deadline. Say, I'm going to pray about this for two weeks, and then after that two weeks, I'm going to do what God tells me to do. God, where do you want me to start in two weeks? That's what I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do what you tell me to do. It's a personal decision between you and the Lord. And then, folks, here's what I would challenge you to do. Just try it. Just try it. This is one of the very few things in Scripture where God has looked out at his people, the children of Israel, and he told them, you put me to the test. You try me out. In the book of Malachi, this is what he says. You just see what happens. God, put God to the test. Start somewhere and see what happens. And I guarantee that embracing a lifestyle of radical generosity, of starting toward that destination, will not leave you sleeping under a bridge with nothing to eat, starving to death. He will take care of you. 
just see what he could do. I think what you'll find, not only that God provides, but that that lifestyle of generosity is a lot of fun. Would you pray with me now? Father, I... You've given us so much. I mean, you poured out your blessing on us. You have, uh, just even the fact that in this room today, we can hear the rustling of papers and the sound of children whispering and, and, and just the, the family that you have gathered together in this room today. Thank you so much for Indian Creek Baptist Church. Thank you most of all for the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, we know because your scripture, your, your word says that we cannot take strides of faith without it impacting all of life, including our financial life. And so, Father, I pray that you would empower us and guide us into the next step of faith. God, I pray that you would begin to do that today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I think we're going to, we need to do something a little bit different today before we uh, respond to God's word and song together. If you are someone who would be able to say that in my life, I have seen God work through steps of faith that I've taken or that my family has taken in generosity. If you're the, if you're the type of person you can say, I can point to specific instances where God has taken care of us and where God's worked through the ways that he's led me to be generous or, or led our family to be generous. Would you be willing to do this? Would you be willing to just stand right now and say, I can, I can testify that this is true for my own life? Okay, folks, just take a second to look around. Not only do you have the authority of God's word that tells us what God says, but we have the testimony of dozens and dozens of people that you can go and ask. And so what we're, what we're talking about today this is something that we live in our day-to-day -day life. And I would just love, I, I, this is what we can pray for today, that all of us could stand. That all of us could make that testimony and say, you know what, I stepped out in faith and God took care of me. We stepped out in faith and God took care of our family and you know what, it was fun. Would you all stand now and let's sing together in response to the word of God.